I imagine that right now you're feeling a bit like Alice. Tumbling down the rabbit hole. Hmm? I can see it in your eyes. I'm trying to free your mind, Neo. You take the red pill. You stay in Wonderland. And I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. Remember, all I'm offering is the truth. I want the truth! You can't handle the truth! What truth? You say you that you are a slave, Neo. Trying to understand this! 20-year-olds fall in and out of love more often than they change their oil filters, which they should do more often. I didn't see the light until I was already a man. You have to let it all go, Neo. Fear, doubt, disbelief. Free your mind. It doesn't matter who we are. No one cared who I was till I put on the mask. How do you define real? You stay in Wonderland, and I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. After this, there is no turning back. Are we clear? Crystal. Well, it's been about two months for Third Degree Mind, but as Morpheus says in one of my absolute favorite scenes of the entire Matrix trilogy, We are still here! We are still here. Welcome back. I always tell you that when we take a break from releasing new podcasts, you can always check out Third Degree Mind on the Facebook page for updates. I try to stay somewhat active on there in posting different things so that you know Third Degree Mind isn't going anywhere. Over the last few months, I've had a great deal of things going on in my own life, and well, this podcast just kind of takes a back seat for a while. You know, that that happens to me a number of times. If you look at the release dates of our previous episodes, it, it seems to happen more often than not that we'll go a month without an episode. This time it's been two months without an episode. Like I said, it's just different things going on in my life, and I, I don't always have the ability to do this as often as I would like to. So I apologize for that. Uh, just a couple things that have been going on. Uh, I've been working on getting my house refinanced. That's finally done. Now I have extra cash to pay down some of my massive debt that I've had for uh, the last few years. I've been looking at getting a new car. I drive a uh, I drive a Dodge Journey right now. It's a like a soccer mom car. And uh, I actually prefer cars over SUVs. It's just kind of always been my preference. But uh, I, I, I have the SUV since uh, having my daughter and having to get her in and out of a car seat and stuff like that. You know, I, I, I didn't like having to bend over for a, a lower car. But now that she's kind of getting older and she gets in and out of the car, mostly on her own, I don't really have to do too much most of the time. Uh, I'm kind of getting back into the phase where I might want a car back. So uh, I've been kind of looking at some options and still working on that. But uh, that's been something that's been consuming some of my time lately. Uh, end of July, I took a, a motorcycle trip out to Denver. I think I talked about that last time. Just uh, always trying to travel and trying to get out of Vegas whenever I have that opportunity. Uh, at work, I've been working on transferring departments, uh, my full-time job. I'm trying to maybe try something new, just move into sim- similar stuff, just different, uh, different department. Uh, my daughter turned four so I had lots of family in town here for that lots of people were staying with me my house was beyond packed uh, probably the most people I've ever had in my house at one time so there's just been a lot of changes going on in my life lately about a week ago I had a conversation with someone close to me about the unpredictability of life 
she's been trying to decide what to do with her own life and has asked me for advice a number of times. She's in her 20s and she's actually a professional golfer, but that life of a professional athlete requires quite a bit of sacrifice. She travels almost constantly, and even when she is here in town not playing in any tournaments, the time commitment required for practicing and keeping her skills up is is unreal. You know, it's seven days a week, nine, ten hours a day. It's It's that life of a professional athlete. And she's been talking about how she doesn't know if she has the drive anymore to continue that life. She still enjoys golfing, but doesn't know if she has the motivation anymore to continue with the massive amount of sacrifice that that kind of job requires. When she leaves, she misses home. She misses people here. She doesn't know if it's still where her heart is. So we were talking a little while ago, and she was kind of telling me how she's afraid to leave that life because... It's all she's ever known, and she doesn't know what she'll do with her life if she leaves golf behind. Like I said, it's it's all she's ever known. She was telling me how she doesn't know what the future holds, and if quitting is the right choice. She doesn't want to feel like she's giving up. She doesn't want to regret the decision down the line. You know, a year from now, five years from now, is she going to be asking herself, why did I quit? Why did I leave that behind? So in talking to her, you know, her apprehension really strikes me as an apprehension for the unknown of the future, not knowing what's going to happen down the line, not knowing all the consequences of a particular decision. None of us really have a crystal ball that could tell us what's in the future. And I, I basically told her that. I said, you know, that that's just a part of life that we make decisions without really knowing what all the consequences are going to be. There might be unintended consequences. We might have regret later. There's all kinds of things that the future holds that we don't know. And I've talked a lot about regret on this program before and how one of the biggest challenges to happiness is learning to live without regret. Life is full of those unknowns. It's full of decisions that we have to make. And sometimes those decisions seem to be near impossible. And we focus so much on making the right one that we forget the fact that that's actually not the hardest part of the process. To me, the greatest challenge is not only being able to make a decision, but the ability to live with that decision that we made, the ability to live without regret to not second-guess ourselves later. We get so focused on trying to make the right decision that we lose sight of the fact that it's actually more important to just make whatever path we follow the right path. We, choose, we make a decision, and we have to make that the right decision for us. It's in our control. It's subjective. It's not about trying to figure out what the right choice is. It's learning how to live with that choice and make that choice right for us. It's all in our control. I even gave her a simple example. If I'm hungry and I want to make a quick snack and I have lots of different choices, mac and cheese, ramen noodles, chicken noodle soup, I got lots of different options in my kitchen. It's not really about trying to make the right choice. It's about just making a choice and then living with it. There's no objectively right or wrong choice in that scenario. I'm not going to stand there for 25 minutes trying to decide, weigh the pros and cons of each different choice and try to figure out which is the right one. That's not how it works in that, in a simple decision like that, like that scenario. In the end, if I choose ramen noodles and I go through the process to make ramen noodles, that's probably what I'm going to end up eating. I'm not going to go through the process of making the ramen and then at the very end when it's done say, you know what, I actually wanted mac and cheese. Let me start over and throw this food out. That's not how we live. We make the decision and then we live with it. I make the ramen, that's what I'm going to eat. 
It's not that mac and cheese was the wrong choice or ramen was the right choice. I could have just as easily made mac and cheese and lived with that. The important part is not so much that I choose the right snack, but more so that I accept whatever choice that I made, whatever meal I made, and I eat it rather than wasting food to prepare all the different options and then make my choice and then throw everything else out. The choice itself isn't the important part. The important part is not regretting the decision and then wasting the rest of the food. Now, I know that's a very simple analogy, and obviously we make decisions bigger than that with bigger consequences and bigger results greater chance of regret but at the core that is how we make our decisions when we choose a career path or when we choose where to buy a house where to move to who to marry who to be with in life whether or not to have kids all these big decisions are things with massive consequences and the possibility of regret but the secret to happiness in all of these decisions big or small, is simply being able to make the decision and live with it, not question yourself for why you chose this career path. If you're in the wrong career field, rather than sitting there stagnantly regretting the decision you made years prior, you have to make a new choice and figure out how to get into something that makes you happy. If you're miserable in your relationship, you're not going to increase happiness by sitting there regretting your decision to be with that person. You have to make a new choice today. You can't redo the choices that you made yesterday or last week or last year. You don't get second chances on those decisions. But you do constantly have the ability to make new choices and go down a new path based on your new situation your new feelings, your new opinions. Whatever it is that brought you into that situation previously, it was because at one time you believed that was the right choice. You could be in an abusive relationship, but the only reason you ended up there is because at one time you believed this person was the right choice for you. It's not even about the fact that you were wrong or you made the wrong decision with who to be with. You can't focus on that. You have to focus on the here and now. How do I get out of this toxic relationship? As I said, it's not about making the right decisions because we don't know the future. If you're in an abusive relationship, I guarantee you didn't know that that relationship was going to go that way when you first got into it. We don't know how we're going to feel later. We don't know what situations we're going to be in later. If I make the ramen noodles now but regret that decision later, well, the next time maybe I'll make mac and cheese. But for now, I made ramen. I'm in that situation because at one time, I chose the ramen noodles. I'm going to be okay with that decision because it's the decision that I made. If I want to throw the ramen out and start over, I can... Or I can just live with the ramen for now. And then next time I'm faced with a similar decision, I can remember back to how I felt this time. It's a silly illustration, guys, but it is truly how we function when we go through a process of making decisions. It's a true illustration of choices, consequences, and regret. If you want to make a change somewhere in your life, you have to accept the fact That it's going to involve decisions, difficult ones, and those decisions are going to have consequences. And the real challenge comes after you make whatever choice, accepting those consequences, and then learning to live with that decision, or revising that decision later, making a new decision today. If you find yourself in a bad situation in life, it's probably because at one time or another, you thought you were making a wise decision. 
In order to be happy, you have to first own the decisions that you made in the past. You can't blame other people for putting you in that situation. If you're in an abusive relationship at one time, like I said, you thought that was the right decision to make. It doesn't matter that you maybe made a poor decision back then. It may not have been a poor decision back then. Again, you didn't know what the future was going to bring you. Own those decisions that you made in the past in order to overcome them. Make new ones that will put you on a better path towards happiness. This whole process is really a cycle. Making a decision, living with consequences, trying to be happy. Making new decisions, going down new paths with new consequences. And then doing it all over again when we find ourselves in the resulting situation. It's really a cycle of repetition, guys. It's not a one and done. As we go through life, we make these decisions, and we go through this process over and over and over again. Even if you look at life where you are now, and you're happy, and you have no regrets, you're still going through this cycle. Because every day that you wake up happy, you're still making choices. You're still making choices to stay where you are and keep moving forward down the path that you already chose. You're continuously reevaluating, even subconsciously, but you are still doing it. It's probably just not stressing you out as much as someone who's unhappy with where they are in life. It's usually the unhappy ones that feel like they have bigger choices to make. I'm happy in my career field, but as I mentioned earlier, I'm working on transferring to a different department within my same job just uh, to try something new. It's not that I'm unhappy where I am. It's just time for change. But that involves decisions, and if I go through with it, it'll involve consequences. Even if I don't go through with it, it'll involve consequences. There's always going to be a possibility of regret, whichever way I go. It's not about trying to choose the right path. It's about just making a choice and then making that choice the right one for me. If I make a choice and I later decide this wasn't the right choice or this did not make me happy, then at that time in the future, I can make another choice to go back to where I was before or go to another place entirely again. It's constant, constant decisions, consequences, and living with those. I posted a quote on the Third Degree Mind Facebook page a little while ago. It says, if you're serious about change, you have to go through uncomfortable situations. Stop trying to dodge the process. It's the only way we grow. I talked a little bit about this concept last time, and I played an audio clip from Will Smith. I'm just going to play that again for you since it applies to all this stuff that we're still talking about. In case you missed it last time, I want you to hear it this time. If you already heard it, I want you to hear it again and and really listen to what he's saying because it brings all of this with choices and consequences. It brings all of this together. I was just uh, having a debate with a friend of mine and we got stuck on the difference between fault and responsibility. She kept talking about how something was somebody's fault, it's somebody's fault. And I was like, it really it don't matter whose fault it is that something is broken if it's your responsibility to fix it. For example, it's, it's not somebody's fault if their father was an abusive alcoholic but it's for damn sure their responsibility to figure out how they're gonna deal with those traumas and try to make a life out of it. It's not your fault if your partner cheated and ruined your marriage, but it is for damn sure your responsibility to figure out how to take that pain and how to overcome that and build a happy life for yourself. Fault and responsibility do not go together. It sucks, but they don't. When something is somebody's fault, We want them to suffer. We want them punished. We want them to to pay. We want it to be their responsibility to fix it. But 
that's, that's not how it works, especially when it's your heart. Your heart, your life, your happiness is your responsibility and your responsibility alone. As long as we're pointing the finger and, and, and stuck in whose fault something is, we're jammed and trapped into victim mode. When you're in victim mode, you are stuck in suffering. The road to power is in taking responsibility. Your heart, your life, your happiness is your responsibility and your responsibility alone. So it's like I've been saying, if you're in a situation that's not a good situation, many times your past decisions put you in that situation and you have to be able to own that and you ha- in order to grow from it, you have to be able to make new decisions that are going to put you down the right path. But it still starts with owning whatever put you in that situation initially. Many, not all, but many situations such as an abusive marriage your decisions in the past put you in that situation. And you have to accept that in order to figure out how you're going to get out of it. You can't just sit there stagnantly regretting your past decisions to marry this person or to be with this person. You have to accept that I'm in this situation. What am I going to do now to get out of it? My friend, the pro golfer, she might not be happy with where she is now, but She has to accept that, number one, she's there because that was the decision that she made. She went down that path that put her in that situation. And now she's in maybe maybe new feelings, new situation, and now she has to make a new choice if she's going to stay there or if she's going to go somewhere else, if she's going to do something else. That's, That's her new decision based on her new feelings and the consequences of her past decision. But that's the only way to find happiness. Accept the decisions that you made. Don't don't regret them. Don't blame yourself for making these decisions, and I shouldn't have done this, I, sh- I shouldn't have ended up in this situation. That doesn't matter. What matters is that you are in that situation. Whether you intended it or not, you're there. Now you got to try to make new decisions for how you're going to overcome that and get back on a path towards happiness. Another hang-up that this friend of mine had was that the life of the pro athlete of any sport really is all about them. They don't really do it for anybody else. They don't really serve anybody else. They don't help anybody else. It's, it's all about me when I'm a pro athlete. And she was talking about how she, you know, the more she does it and the longer she's been doing it, she's starting to realize that and she doesn't really like that. She thinks that her heart is with helping others and doing something for other people, which is why she kind of wants to move maybe into giving golf lessons, especially to kids. You know, she really likes kids. That might be something that she uh, would rather do instead of doing the pro athlete life for just me. And we were talking about, you know, she brought up, I, I've always been told that I should do something that makes me happy and is for me. And, and she was, the only hangup she had on this was, I've always done that. I've always done something that was for me and was supposed to make me happy. And now if I start changing my goals in life and I start making my goals more about making other people happy, is that is that still okay? And and I said, well, of, of course it is because Many of us work in jobs that serve other people and do other do things for other people and and that it's okay to do things like that when they bring you happiness too. It's not it's not selfish at all. It's it's actually a very selfless thing to do. And that's totally okay if you find your happiness in helping others. Like I said lots of lots of lots of different industries involve that type of work where you serve other people so I didn't even hesitate when I told her no absolutely and I I don't think she ever really looked at it like that because you know I keep telling her you need to do what's going to make you happy and she her response was well I've, I've always done what makes me happy that's why I'm a pro athlete because that's for no one except for me and now if I kind of change my goals to be more towards more geared towards uh 
helping others and doing things that make other people happy, is that is that still okay? Am I still going to make myself happy? And of course, at the end of the day, if helping others makes you happy, then of course that's okay, 100%. I'm going to talk a little bit more about that uh, in a moment, but uh, we're going to take a short break. And thanks for listening to Third Degree Mind. We'll be right back. Don't go away. Hey guys, it's Jay of Third Degree Mind Podcast. If you're a regular listener of Third Degree Mind, I hope you found an easy way to download and stream all of the latest content. There are a bunch of ways that you can do that and make sure that you're always getting up-to-date notifications when we release a new episode. I want to make sure that you found one of those so that you're always able to listen to Third Degree Mind on demand and that we don't lose touch. The majority of our audience gets Third Degree Mind from CastBox. You can go to castbox.fm on the web or download the CastBox app using your Android or Apple device and then search for Third Degree Mind. And don't forget to click subscribe. Another option is if you have an Apple device like an iPhone, Third Degree Mind is available for free in the Apple iTunes store. Just search Third Degree Mind and click subscribe. Third Degree Mind is produced on Podbean, so you can always find all the available episodes there at thirddegreemind.podbean.com. And of course, you can subscribe there as well. Podbean also has mobile apps for your Android or Apple device to make it even easier to find all of our content and subscribe so that you'll always get up-to-date notifications when new content is released. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Welcome back, Third Degree Mind. We're talking about making these decisions in life and decisions uh, for career paths uh, towards making yourself happy. But I also kind of ended before the break just on talking about the difference between, you know, making yourself happy and doing something that makes other people happy. And I shared something on the Third Degree Mind uh, Facebook page recently that kind of makes me think about this a little bit. It's it's a story. Uh, I'm not sure if you've had a chance to read it, but if you haven't, I'm, I'm going to read that uh, real quick now. It basically centers around this idea that uh, you can make all the difference in the world. You can change the world and you can impact someone else. And, you know, Dr. Seuss says this perfectly. Dr. Seuss has a famous quote, to the world you may be just one person, but to one person you may be the world. And I want to just read this story for you to kind of illustrate uh, what that means and, and the significance of how you can impact other people. Every Sunday morning, I take a light jog around a park near my home. There's a lake located in one corner of the park. Each time I jog by this lake, I see the same elderly woman sitting at the water's edge with a small metal cage sitting beside her. This past Sunday, my curiosity got the best of me, so I stopped jogging and I walked over to her. As I got closer, I realized that the metal cage was in fact a small trap. There were three turtles, unharmed, slowly walking around the base of the trap. She had a fourth turtle in her lap that she was carefully scrubbing with a spongy brush. Hello, I said. I see you here every Sunday morning. If you don't mind my nosiness, I'd love to know what you're doing with these turtles. She smiled. I'm cleaning off their shells, she replied. Anything on a turtle shell, like algae or scum, reduces the turtle's ability to absorb heat and impedes its ability to swim. It can also corrode and weaken the shell over time. Wow, that's really nice of you, I exclaimed. She went on, I spend a couple hours each Sunday morning relaxing by this lake and helping these little guys out. It's my own strange way of making a difference. But don't most freshwater turtles live their whole lives with algae and scum hanging from their shells? I asked. Yep, sadly they do, she replied. I scratched my head and thought, Well then, don't you think your time could be better spent? I mean, I think your efforts are kind and all, but there are freshwater turtles living in lakes all around the world, and 99% of these turtles don't have kind people like you 
to help them clean off their shells. So no offense, but how exactly are your localized efforts here truly making a difference? The woman giggled aloud. She then looked down at the turtle in her lap, scrubbed off the last piece of algae from its shell, and she said, Sweetie, if this little guy could talk, he'd tell you that I just made all the difference in the world. My friends, you can change the world. Maybe not all at once, but just one person at a time. You can impact someone else's life so simply, just one step at a time. Remember that quote from Dr. Seuss. To the world, you may be just one person, but to one person, you may be the world. You know, I come from a family of teachers, and I I think teachers personify this concept uh, maybe better than a lot of other jobs, especially urban inner-city teachers. And my dad taught for a long time in the inner city of uh, Milwaukee. And, you know, he would talk about how every day in class he might have 50 or 60% of the kids actually even show up. He'd have a couple students that throughout the entire course of the year he wouldn't even see because they just never would come to class. He didn't even know what some of them looked like because, like I said, they, they would just never show up. And I got to thinking, like, you know, teachers tend to get into that profession because they want to impact young lives they want they sure they want to teach whatever subject they're teaching but at the core of it it's because they want to impact they want to influence the next generation and that that's what teaching really is all about impact and influence on younger people so you know i got to thinking like If only half your class shows up, like, isn't that kind of discouraging that you're not impacting those? And and, and the more I thought about it and, you know, through conversations with him and, and other teachers, a lot of people do it because they'll work their ass off for just that one student that they might impact. You know, in 30 years of him teaching and my mom's a teacher and I got a sister that's a teacher, I got a bunch of relatives in my extended family that are teachers. And they, they don't do it because they're going to change the world. They do it because they're, they're going to influence young people one person at a time, one mind at a time. And it's, it's kind of that same analogy with the turtles. Like, I can make all the difference in the world for this one turtle. I'm not going to change the outcome of the entire world, but I can make my influence and I can make my impact one little step at a time by touching one life at a time. And that's what it's all about. And that's why I really like that story of the, uh, of the turtles. I want to shift topics a little bit and talk a little bit about, uh, some medications with uh, mental illnesses. I've gotten several questions uh, on Facebook from listeners and a couple of a couple of my closer friends that know what I've gone through in my own struggle with mental illness. A lot of people seem to have asked for uh, me to talk a little bit about uh, medications associated with mental illness and in. What, what I think about them and what some of the studies show about the differences between mental, mentally ill patients that are medicated and mentally ill patients that are not medicated. And I just want to start this topic uh, by talking about uh, some issues of medical ethics. In the medical field, one of the most sacred parts of the theory of ethics is informed consent which means a patient has the ultimate say in what type of treatment they receive. The the person themselves get to to choose what type of medication they receive and whether or not they're going to receive medication at all or if they're going to receive some other form of of treatment, therapy, uh, group sessions, whatever. Ultimately, that falls in the hands of the patient to make that decision. 
And anytime I talk about mental illnesses, I always throw out the disclaimer that's at the end of every episode of Third Degree Mind. You know, I'm I'm not a mental health professional. I'm not any type of doctor or therapist. I'm simply a mental health patient uh, sharing some of my own experiences in life, what I've gone through, what I continue to go through, some of my opinions and observations. So please don't take any of this as medical advice from a professional. If you're in treatment currently, please stay in that treatment. Uh, If you feel you need treatment, please seek it out. Don't use this program as a substitute for actual mental health treatment. That's not my intention here by any means. Uh, So as I was saying, I was talking about informed consent. Having, Having a mental illness alone is not enough to force someone into treatment against their will. Generally speaking, unless a patient has demonstrated that they're a threat to themselves, you know, by means of suicide, they're harming themselves in another way, or if they're a threat to others, you know, homicidal tendencies, feeling violent towards other people, things like that. Unless these types of extenuating circumstances exist, simply having a diagnosis of a mental illness is not going to... is not enough to force someone into treatment. They still have to consent. And the issue here is when you talk about severe mental illnesses, you know, forms of psychosis, uh, things like schizophrenia, it could be argued that they absolutely need to be on medication in order to lead a, quote, normal life. Without it, they'll just be so self-destructive, their quality of life will be so terrible that some people might argue that that means uh, mental health providers should be allowed to force that person into treatment. But the whole idea of informed consent still says that, again, unless that person's a threat to their own physical safety or someone else's safety, we're not going to force them into treatment against their will. We're not going to force them to be hospitalized against their will. The patient's right to choose is such a sacred thing within medical ethics that people have a lot of freedom when it comes to the type of treatment that they receive or their ability to refuse things such as medication. Now, there's really a variety of reasons that people refuse to take medications. And and I did a quick Google search, and I found that uh, by far the most common reason is denial or simple unawareness that they have a mental illness. I found a study that said that 55%, more than half of people who refuse to take their medication, do so because they don't believe they're actually sick. And I think that's one of the biggest hurdles that mental health practitioners face all the time. Patients deny a diagnosis for a variety of reasons. They don't want to be labeled. They, you know, they feel fine and they don't want to accept that something is wrong. Or they don't feel fine, but they don't want to accept that it's because they are sick. Even the term sick could be an offensive label. Now, I don't personally get offended by that label, but many people do. For me, having borderline personality disorder, that's pretty much a permanent condition. It's, it's part of who I am. And to label me as sick could be taken as an insult because it, it's who I am. I'm different than you. But to call me sick because I'm different is, is offensive. You know, certain people look at it that way. And when you use terms like sick, you are implying that the person can be treated and made healthy. But things like bipolar disorder, schizophrenia, and, and other conditions are, are not curable. They might be treatable or manageable, but they aren't curable. So if you're diagnosed with schizophrenia, a doctor is telling you that you have an incurable disease that is going to affect your mind so strongly that your quality of life will suffer unless you take these drugs and continue seeing these doctors for the rest of your life because you are permanently sick. Well, it's no wonder that people don't want to accept that. I mean, denial is a major coping mechanism for how humans deal with stress of many different kinds. The same thing holds true with other illnesses such as terminal cancer. There's a lot of people that go through a phase of denial when they are told that they have terminal cancer and have less than a year to live. 
they get blindsided and then they go through a denial phase. No, that's not true. I'm, I'm not going to die in a year. So when we talk about mental illnesses, many of which are permanent, life-altering diagnoses, it's no wonder that people refuse medications and, and deny having that condition. 55% of the time, that refusal of the medication is because of denial. If we go beyond that initial diagnosis, you know, many people will take medications, they'll get better, and then they believe that they're now cured, and they'll stop taking the medication because they aren't connecting the dots that it's it's the medication that did the healing. They just think they're healed, and so now I'm going to stop taking the meds. Someone with clinical depression takes antidepressants, and in the perfect scenario, they're no longer depressed. They feel better. So what do they do? Well, they stop taking the medications. They feel like, I don't need these medications anymore. So they stop taking them. Guess what? The depression comes back. We're back to square one where something's wrong with me, except this time, rather than going back on the medications, they might conclude, well, I already tried taking medications, and look, I'm still depressed. They didn't work. I'm not doing that again. They get in their head, and they think that the medications failed them, because it didn't erase their condition. Part of this challenge is what I talked about a minute ago. It's, it's the labeling of people as sick or other terms that degrade that person's self-image and autonomy. People who have a mental illness, such as depression or bipolar, borderline personality disorder, they already have major struggles involving self-identity and self-worth. So if we now slap a degrading label on them, that's not going to help. In fact, I found that 6% of people with mental illness report that they avoid medication simply because they're worried about what others would think. They're worried about that label. They're worried about the perception from other people. They're worried about being labeled as crazy. Everyone else in my life, if I start taking this medication, everyone else in my life is going to think that I'm crazy. I'd rather just not take the medication because I'm afraid of that label. Another huge factor in medication refusal is personal autonomy. People with mental illness often feel as though they're not in control. They're not in control of their emotions, their feelings, their mind, their world. A great struggle especially for conditions such as borderline, something that I deal with, a great struggle is a lack of controlling their world and their emotions. A daily, daily, daily struggle for me is trying to control my emotions, trying to control what's going on in my head. So when someone tells me, here, take this medication, I'm immediately on the defense because someone else is trying to take control of my world. Someone else is trying to take control of my mind. I've been desperately trying to control what's going on in my mind. I've struggled to do that, which is why I'm here in the first place talking to the psychiatrist. And now he wants me to take a pill. And if I do, I'm giving up control. That will give him control of my world and of my mind. If I take this pill, I'm submitting I'm giving up control. Medications will alter my personality. They'll alter who I am at the core. I'm having these issues with emotions and how I fit into the world. That's what borderline makes you uh, makes you feel like you know you're trying to figure out how you fit in. You're trying to find your personal identity. But if I take this medication, which is supposed to treat that, it's going to alter all of those things. It's going to alter who I am at the core. So if you have something like borderline, you're desperately trying to control your personality. You're desperately trying to control how you interact with the world, how you fit into it, knowing who I am, knowing my own self-identity. Taking this medication alters all of those things, and that would make it even harder for me to identify who I am. And that's something that's actually very terrifying in fact, 7% of mental health patients refused to take their medication because they were worried about being hospitalized against their will. 
and another 5% reported that it was a fear of altering their personality and they don't want to be put under the control of a doctor. So in a way, for this group of 12%, 1 in 10, more than 1 in 10, it's almost like a form of paranoia of the mental health providers. I'm on the defense against these people that are trying to treat me. I'm on the defense because I don't want to give up control to them. I don't even know who these people are. And still there's another group that says that they choose to refuse medication. Uh, Family and close friends continue to pressure them into accepting those medications. So they make the decision not to. Now their family and friends try to pressure them into it. And that only further strengthens their resistance. Because again, it's personal autonomy. It's, it's independence. Some people avoid medications specifically because they feel such an overwhelming pressure from their loved ones to take it. And again, if they give in, they're giving up control, not only to doctors, but also now to all of their loved ones. Steering clear of these medications is an assertion of my personal autonomy. It's an assertion of my independence and my right to choose because 50 people around me are telling me to do this and I'm saying, no, I'm not going to do that. That's personal autonomy and that's super, super important to people that have these different mental illnesses. That personal autonomy makes the patient feel free. It It makes them feel like they are gaining control of the situation. And that control of the situation, that control of their mind and of their thoughts, those, that control is something that they so desperately want as a result of whatever illness that they might have. So just the suggestion I have on that, if you have a family member or friend, someone close to you that's refusing medication, look at it from their perspective. They want that personal autonomy and pressuring them into taking that med is not going to be productive. Uh, Friends and family can help alleviate concerns about that personal autonomy by, you know, avoiding threats. Consider abandoning that subject of medication. Talk about other ways to manage the loved one's illness. Because again, they might be avoiding that medication specifically because they feel so much pressure to try it. Remember that... That's their personal assertion. I'm sorry, that's their assertion of personal autonomy. That article I was just talking about, reading little segments from, that comes from Psychology Today, psychologytoday.com. The article is titled, Treatment Compliance Issues in Mentally Ill Adults. Why do some struggling adults stop taking their medication? And it breaks it down by the numbers there. and, And you know, it's, like I said, Huge, huge majority, 55% because of denial, whether it's because they've never taken meds and they don't want to, or it's because they've taken meds and then they believe that they were fine and didn't need them anymore, so they stopped, and then when they stopped, their symptoms came back, but then they blame the medication as not working. And then, you know, 12% in the, uh, the group about personal autonomy, not altering my personality, uh, don't tell me what to do kind of thing. So again, if you're if you're in one of these situations where you know someone that's refusing medication, don't be the one that's trying to pressure them into it. Abandon that topic altogether and let them come to that conclusion themselves. Talk with them and support them in their decision and talk with them about maybe other ways, other types of therapy that can help treat their their uh their mental illness because Medication, for certain illnesses, medication, I do believe medication is necessary, but before you can get to that, you have to have the the person's consent, and you're not going to get it if all you do is try to force it down their throat. That's going to make it even harder to get that consent. And many mental illnesses out there don't actually need medication. It just depends on the severity of what they have, what it's you know, what it's, uh, how it's affecting them and how they're handling it. There are other ways to manage different types of mental illness. 
if you know someone in that situation, most important things are going to be to support them, be there for them, talk about their decision and how it is their decision, all those things. Like I said, I received multiple questions from different people uh, around the topic of medications. So I just wanted to hit that topic really quick, and we'll continue with that a little bit more next time. If you have any questions or comments on this topic or any other topic, feel free to reach out to me. Easiest way to get in touch is always going to be the Facebook page, Third Degree Mind. Send me a message there. If you don't have Facebook, the next best thing is email, borderline750 at gmail.com. Drop me a line there so that I know you're out there and what you think about this particular topic or anything else that you might be interested in. Before I leave, I do have one question for you. My question of the week that I want to get some opinions on. Should kids call step-parents mom or dad? And then why or why not? It doesn't have anything to do with uh, anything that we talked about today, but I'm going to use the responses that I get from you all in a future episode of Third Degree Mind. So please take five minutes, send me a message with your thoughts on that. Should kids call step-parents mom or dad? And then why or why not? Thank you for listening, and always remember that you can impact the world one person at a time. You may think that you are completely insignificant in this world, but someone drinks coffee every morning from their favorite cup that you gave them. Someone heard a song on the radio that reminded them of you. Someone read the book that you recommended and plunged headfirst into it. Someone remembered your joke and smiled, returning home from work in the evening. Someone loves himself a little more because you gave them a compliment. Never think that you have no influence whatsoever. Your trace, which you leave behind with even a few good deeds, cannot be erased. I Hey, it's Jay, creator and host of Third Degree Mind Podcast. Thanks for listening to today's episode. I wanted to close really quick by reminding you that Third Degree Mind is produced primarily for entertainment purposes and is not intended to treat or diagnose any mental illness and is not intended to replace clinical psychiatry. I am not a licensed therapist or physician, so if you feel that you need mental health treatment, please always seek that appropriate care in your area. If you're feeling actively suicidal, please call 911 or take yourself to an emergency room. If you're in the U.S., you can contact the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline 24-7 at 1-800-273-8255 or contact them using their online chat service at suicidepreventionlifeline.org. And once again, they are available 24-7.